two nights, two movies, one unbelievable experience. I survived the Barbenheimer double feature, and I tell you all about it right now on Mike Seibert Radio. Welcome back to Mike Seibert Radio. I am your host, and today we are going to talk about the Barbenheimer phenomenon, where I will give you my thoughts on both Barbie and Oppenheimer in uh, in tandem here. Uh, but before we get into any of that, um, uh, first of all, uh, uh, thanks for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. I know it's been a few. I've been... Uh, to say that I've been super busy after Cybefest uh, is a little bit of an understatement, and that's kind of been affecting my output recently. Um, I I would, though, like to thank everyone who came out to Cybefest and everyone who made this year's Cybefest Northwest our 10th annual convention, um, our little Transformers convention here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it was our It was our best one yet. Uh, the the feedback we've gotten from folks has been incredible. Our featured guest Paul Eiding had a blast, and it was a it, it was really good time. So I want to thank everyone who helped make that such a success. Including, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, my dude Anthony Bercali, tfu.info owner operator madman of tfu.info. The uh, the website, the toy archive. I, I'm just doing all of his copy now. I just it, it's so ingrained into me that I just I, I just start rolling. But anyway, he uh, hosts Transformers University. But you already knew that he um, uh, put out a episode uh, the week of Cybefest and snuck in our promo. And I also want to give a shout out to TFG One Mike who snuck in another spin of uh of our side fest promo as well and again i gotta give big ups to my buddy sean for uh for the production assist on that side fest promo um i really like the way it turns out got a lot of really good feedback on it and uh so i hope you liked it as well but like i said i i've been i've been super busy lately and if um if you wanted to hear me talk about the flash the flash movie um, I didn't have time to do an episode on it, but I was recently a guest on Unfunny Nerd Tangent with Greg and Jared, and I think I got out pretty much everything that I wanted to say about that movie. So if you want to hear me um, not speak very positively about the uh, latest, potentially last of the DC Extended Universe, uh, go ahead and check that out uh, wherever you listen to Mike Seibert Radio. That's the latest episode of Unfunny Nerd Tangent and our conversation on The Flash. Um, if you've been following me on social media, 
You've been seeing me post about the upcoming 50th anniversary of KGRG, my uh, college station, uh, college radio station um, of which I'm alumni of. And we've been doing a lot of celebration and uh, new content and a lot of alumni shows, uh, some of which I've been a part of, some I've just kind of been facilitating, kind of working behind the scenes with a, a group of alumni folks and some of the the um, uh, the station administration there um, to kind of just get folks to talk about their nostalgia for being college radio kids. And if uh, if this is your first episode of Mike Seibert Radio, and you know every every podcast is somebody's first podcast, the first um, hundred or so episodes of Mike Seibert Radio are basically uh, recordings of my old college radio show. Uh, So I have a great deal of affection for the radio station and uh, radio program over at Green River College over in Auburn, Washington, about 20 miles south of Seattle. Uh, But I'm not here if not for that. And you've heard me talk about that, those of the – that have been with me for this long. You've heard me wax philosophical about about KGRG in the past, so I'm not necessarily going to do it here where I'm talking about movies, but it is a foundational uh, experience for me. So I've um, I, I was I was called on to help out, and I've been doing that, and it's a uh, it's been taking up a lot of my time. In fact, I I I have so much banked content that I don't know what to do with it. And I haven't had the opportunity to uh, take the time and do edits and put stuff up. Um, I did get a new episode of two Mike's too furious out where me and Michael Andrews talk about uh, transformers animated episode 11 uh, sound and fury, which is the one where Blitzwing and Lugnut come to Earth in search of Megatron, and action-packed hijinks ensue. So many missiles that that episode seems to have been sponsored by missiles. So that was a really fun conversation. I was really excited to finally get that out. That is out now on the Two Mics Too Furious uh, podcast feed, uh, separate from Mike Cybert Radio here. Uh, but go check that out. That's a lot of fun. Uh, but man, you know, with the KGRG stuff, I did a reunion show with Elijah uh, that aired on KGRG like a week ago. But I'm still sitting on the recording to get that out for podcast listeners that that will be coming soon. Uh, but the biggest thing that I have coming up is the uh, mega ass live stream for the second portion of Transformers Earthspark. Now, by the time you're listening to this, it looks like the last batch of episodes for season one of Transformers Earth Earthspark have dropped on Paramount Plus. So I'm really excited to get into those and check those out and then eventually reunite Mike and the Earth Sparkles. But like, I want to say, I don't know, maybe like a month or so ago, um, Maybe a little longer. I, I would have to check it. It's on my YouTube channel. But basically, like, uh, we did a live stream called Fuck Turfs. 
Mike and the Earth Sparkles talk about part two of Transformers Earth Spark. And basically, we talked about the, at that point, latest batch of episodes. But we also kind of get into the uh, quote-unquote outrage over those episodes and those characters and materials, uh, specifically uh, folks in conservative right-wing media uh, seem to have a lot of problems with Nightshade and and they-them pronouns and uh, identifying as, as a non-binary robot and all of the moral implications of that, you know, saying they coming after your children and whatnot. So uh, myself and General Techno and Joe Bot and Lita and Michael Andrews, we... We unpack that as well as do reviews of the episodes as well. The The live stream itself was like four and a half hours. So I had always intended to divide it into multiple podcasts. Uh, I At the time, I was thinking I was going to divide it into three episodes. I still think I'm going to do that. So the, the first portion of it is where we really get into the right-wing outrage and then uh, the next two episodes will be uh, the, I think there's six episodes that we talk about. So it'll be like three and three. I don't know. I, I, I have not looked at that material since we recorded it. But I promise you it is something that will be hitting your feeds uh, in uh, uh, probably August. Um, I, do, I don't know at this point how much more new stuff I'm going to record between now and and September, I th- this might be the last time I I record a new show, uh, less maybe some wraparounds for uh, uh, for Mike and the Earth Sparkles talking about uh, Earth Spark, along with another episode of Existential Dreadcast. This time with a guest, uh, Mike Blanchard will join me for the Existential Dread of TFG One Mike, and we'll talk about the origins of the Geekcast Radio Network and why talking about themes of mental health are so important to them. That's a, that's going to be a really good conversation. But none of that is what we're talking about today. I just kind of wanted to give you guys a little bit of a, a life update and let you know what, what I've been up to. I've been incredibly busy, but I have not forgotten about my friends that want to hear me talk about movies and get my hot takes on things. And I've, um, in fact... I, I'm recording in the middle of the night. I've stayed late at work uh, because I, I I have been wanting to talk about Barbenheimer for uh, a week or so. In fact, I wanted to talk about it before the movie came out um, and just really kind of give you my thoughts on like this whole phenomenon. And I'm glad that I'm I'm doing this episode now because now the movies have been out for a week so now there's like some box office numbers I can share and kind of kind of give a little more context than what this episode would originally have been. So uh, but with that, let's uh, let's just kind of get into it. And so uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer both came out on July 21st, and that's where the Barbenheimer ship name comes from, the the nickname of the double feature and. I don't remember where it started or how it started, but it's it's been rumbling for a while, uh, probably for a good long while, probably the last several months. Once it became clear that the 
release date for both movies or either movie wasn't going to move and that that is just what it was going to be. And it was going to be a um, uh, kind of a competition, but also kind of not really. And And that's what I think makes the Barbenheimer phenomenon so special in that it's never really been couched as a competition. It's kind of been more celebrated as counter-programming or complementary counter-programming. But what makes the, the Barbenheimer phenomenon so unique is, you know, I mean, it, it's it's not unheard of for movies to come out on the same day or to have different types of movies come out on the same day. But I think this is the first instance where in the internet age, the internet really got a hold of it and really pushed the, the, the meme culture uh, surrounding it. And I, I'll talk about this later when I get into some of the uh, conservative outrage towards Barbie specifically, but I, I'm at once uh, cynical and skeptical, but also kind of gullible and naive. So what I mean by that is that I I pushed all my chips in on the Barbenheimer meme. Like uh, you you probably saw uh, pictures of uh, of me from the screenings. You know where uh, you know I wore different outfits uh, for for each different showing, and so you know and really kind of like getting into getting into the fun of it. But what I wonder though is did I do that because the internet told me to, or the internet told me that was fun. Um, so uh, at, a, at a time where both of these movies kind of deal with existentialism and individuality and how you feel about your place in the world, I don't know if I was manipulated by the movies um, and, and the memes or if I was just there uh, for a fun time. But um, I want to start off with a, with a, a, a little bit of uh, context, and I found this terrific uh, Twitter thread. Uh, the account is Pop Culture Posts at Not Gwendalupe. Uh, but anyway, they, they put up a, a thread in honor of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Here's a thread of times when two similar, similar genres of media were released in the same time and on the same weekend. So um, obviously you have uh, uh, Barbenheimer. But uh, 10 Things I Hate About You was released on the same day as The Matrix on March 31st of 1999. Uh, Back on July 15th of 1998, There's Something About Mary and the Mask of Zorro uh, battled for the weekend. Uh, Back on December 13th of 2002, The Hot Chick and Star Trek Nemesis came out on the same day. Um, also the Lizzie McGuire movie and X-Men two both premiered on the same day on March 2nd, 2003. And really the, the, the most thing, and you've probably seen this more than the others, but famously, uh, Mamma Mia and the dark Knight, also a Christopher Nolan jam, uh, came out on July 18th, uh, 2008, but that was not the first time that the dark Knight fought off uh, a movie about blondes. Uh, But 
the the Hillary Duff vehicle, uh, The Perfect Man, also starring Heather Locklear and Chris Noth. I have never seen this movie or heard of it, but The Perfect Man and Batman Begins also came out on the same day on June 17th uh, back in 2005. And Freaky Friday and the uh, movie version of SWAT battled for the weekend of August 6th. Uh, 2003 there's a there's a couple more there but you get the point so different movies coming out at the same time is not unheard of but i think i think it's the internet i think i think it's meme culture i think that's what's different now because i remember when uh mama mia and the dark knight came out uh, uh at, at, at the same time and you know, I, I i think it was more looked at as like competition more than collaboration. And I think that's what I think that's what makes Barbenheimer so different is that um folks start talking about uh planning double features. Movie theaters were getting in on it. The the merch, the swag, the t-shirts, like uh I I saw more than a couple movie theaters locally, uh, uh specifically the Grand Cinema in Tacoma had um they made t-shirts they had staggered uh start times for both movies so that you could do either end you know either either barbie first or oppenheimer first um i found this article on insider um gosh maybe close to a month ago um uh, but i i've since reposted it a couple times now th- this was this was before the movie came out and i I kind of want to talk about this through the lens of kind of my experience seeing the movies and how I thought about them and see if that resonates with you as well. Uh, headline, we planned out the best way to see Barbie and Oppenheimer so you don't have to, including drinks, meals, and other between-show activity. So this article posits there there is obviously no wrong way to experience the magic that will undoubtedly be the Barbie-Oppenheimer double feature. While Barbie calls for fruity cocktails and clubbing with the girls, Oppenheimer gives off more of a black coffee and cigarette energy. It's clear the vibes don't mix. That's what makes this double feature so appealing. Here is our perfect schedule to get the most out of the Barbenheimer double feature, no matter which one you see first. If you're starting the day with Barbie, your day of fun will quickly take a dark turn. You're sleeping in late if you're starting the day with Barbie. There's no rush in Barbie land. At 11 a.m., it's time for brunch with the girlies to kick off this day. And by brunch, we mean brunch. Pancakes, scrambled eggs, bacon, and a ton of mimosas, margaritas, and other cocktails of choice. Barbie calls for a slight giggly drunk. The movie is at 2 p.m. You eat popcorn. You drink a giant Diet Coke. Maybe it's the cherry-flavored one. You have fun. Go nuts. Have fun while it lasts until director Greta Gerwig inevitably drops some sort of -of coming-of-age lesson that prompts you to call your mom in tears following the film. It'll probably be sobbing like after Lady Bird, maybe a little worse. The drinks by now have worn off, and it's time to start preparing for the moodier part of the evening, Oppenheimer. If all goes well, it's just started to rain as you and your group make your way to dinner. Dinner is the opposite of brunch. We're talking steak, vegetables, beers, lots of beers. You're still having fun, though. 
you're recalling the best Barbie moments. You're analyzing how Greta Gerwig pulled off such a poignant film about a doll. Then 9 p.m. rolls around. It's time for Oppenheimer. Yes, the movie is three hours long. By the end, you're exhausted. You're sober and you're questioning reality. You might sit on the curb and stare down the street for a bit. If you're up for it, you could hit a bar with your group to drink liquor straight and process it all. But by two, you go home alone. You sit on your couch in silence. It'll feel surreal. That's the point. And then fall asleep for two hours. Now, on the other hand, if you're starting the day with Oppenheimer, expect to end the night in the club on a high note. Your day will be very different if you start with Oppenheimer. You wake up ungodly early for some reason and can't fall back to sleep. You finally get out of bed around 9 a.m. and start your day with a black coffee or two and a cigarette or two. You head to the movie theater for the 11 a.m. showing of Oppenheimer. On the way there, you're blasting Radiohead and your noise-canceling headphones. Absolutely no snacks or sodas are allowed during the viewing. The biopic about the man who led the creation of the atomic bomb requires your undivided attention. Just after 2 p.m., you leave the movie and throw up. It'll be intense on an empty stomach. You still sit on the curb and stare into the void. Now is the perfect time to contemplate humanity's propensity for violence, for war. Stare some more into that void. With that out of the way, it's time to party. You and the aforementioned girlies then meet up at the bar for mid-afternoon appies and red wine, ready to tackle the second and more fun part of the day. Then the girls are going to an early dinner, let's say 5 p.m.-ish. There will be fancy salads, gourmet pasta galore, and plenty of wine and cocktails. If you're not a little bit tipsy when you're heading into Barbie land, you're doing it wrong. At last, it's Barbie time! You hit the 8 p.m. showing and leave the theater around 10 reinvigorated. With all of the energy, the cocktails still flowing in your bloodstream, there's no other option than to hit the club. Then probably one or two more. We're riding that Barbie high all night, baby! By this version of 2 a.m., you're literally crying in the club. But that's because you and your girls are having so much fun, you can actually feel like you could be in Barbie land. In this beautiful reality, we're all Barbie. You end the night by going home with at least one other friend for a platonic slumber party. It just feels right. So how did we get here? How did we get to where these two movies are being released on the same day? It largely has to do with Christopher Nolan's complicated history with Warner Brothers. And because of that, that may have actually gifted us Barbenheimer. So uh, director Christopher Nolan, Dark Knight trilogy, uh, Insomnia, Inception, Interstellar, a lot of other movies that start with the letter I, um, had traditionally made movies over at Warner Brothers. The pandemic hits, and his big blockbuster movie for 2020, Tenet, is a victim of the pandemic. And this is kind of some of the beginning of what I consider to be Christopher Nolan's hubris. So 
fixated on theatrical presentation that Christopher Nolan famously refused to allow Tenet to be released onto digital streaming platforms even as the movie opened to closed movie theaters. Like where I was at in Seattle, I literally couldn't go see Tenet. Um, but, you know, Christopher Nolan says, you know what? This movie's going to save the movies. Well, we kind of saw how that went. Um, but that that wasn't the end of the troubles. So reacting to the pandemic, Warner Brothers decides to take a day and date approach with regards to their 2021 slate of movies, meaning they would release the movies to theaters that were open, which is bizarre to think about because there was a time when theaters weren't open. Um, and it feels like a lifetime ago, like like a literal actual lifetime ago that like I even as I'm saying these things out loud to you, it just it just sounds bizarre that like a summer blockbuster opened to movie theaters that weren't even open. It's it's just insane to to think about now in 2023. But basically, HBO or, or Warner Brothers had this new streaming platform, HBO Max. And their idea was to put out movies on streaming and in movie theaters at the same time. So if you wanted to go to the movies, you could. If you didn't want to go to the movies, well, you uh, you could subscribe to HBO Max and get the movies at home. Christopher Nolan takes umbrage with this and is really mad. And and there there's this whole other podcast I could do talking about uh, the other actors and directors. And ba- basically, like, it was kind of the studio versus the creatives. Warner Brothers made this decision unilaterally, didn't consult any of the directors or any of the stars. And it, w- it was a really weird time for Hollywood. Um, ironically enough, talking about this now in a weird time for Hollywood with uh, both the uh, actor strike and the ongoing writer strike. So we're, we're kind of in, in weird territory here. And really, I, I guess at this point, I should underscore that this is a, a very bizarre Hollywood story in that this this is a huge victory. Barbenheimer is a, is a victory for Hollywood. Hollywood wins at a time that, I don't know, do we want Hollywood to win at this point? It, it's, it, it's hard to say. Um, I, I know I've got mixed feelings, but, um, but, but the point being is that um, Nolan says he, do, he doesn't want to work with Warner Brothers and Universal Studios was just as quick to say, well, say, why don't you make your Oppenheimer biopic over here with us? And so that's how um, that's kind of how Oppenheimer ends up at Universal instead of Warner. And I don't know as much about the development of the Barbie movie um, or at what point it ended up at Warner's. I mean, there's been several stories about the version of it that was going to star Amy Schumer or the version that was going to be written by Diablo Cody. I don't know if those are the same version of the movie or not. Um but basically it became kind of this this kind of head to head thing where neither studio 
wanted to um, wanted to budge. And it's interesting as I talk about things from my perspective as a member of the media who watch these via press screenings because I, I put a poll out on Twitter um, a couple weeks ago once I got the press invites for the respective press screenings for both Oppenheimer and Barbie. Um, first, I got the press screening for Oppenheimer. I, uh, I, I received an invite for the screening like, like a month ahead, which is unusual. And it, my first red flag was that the theater that it was going to be screening at was a, uh, was a small art house theater. Uh, one where I I've seen like super indie movies at, I mean, you know, obviously in downtown Seattle, there's a, there, there's a thriving indie, uh, uh, film scene. Um, so I thought that was odd because basically the, the thing with Oppenheimer is that both Christopher Nolan and the studio were pushing as hard as they could to be like, Hey man, this is a movie that needs to be seen in 70 millimeter IMAX as God intended, that kind of thing. So I, I thought it was kind of weird that um, that they were going to show it at, at a little art house. More on that in a sec. Um, time passes, and I see a... Uh, they revise the invite. And I'm thinking that, okay, well, cool. It's... They've had. I've been to press screenings here in Seattle at the Pacific Science Center IMAX Theater. It is, uh, it is the largest theater in Washington State. It's six stories high, about sixty feet, and about eighty feet wide, and it is true IMAX. So you get the correct aspect ratio, and that's where, because it's connected to a science center, you know they show a lot of educational movies and all that, but also all of the IMAX formatted blockbusters in quote unquote true IMAX. And again, I've said this on this podcast a number of times, the quote unquote IMAX at your local Regal or AMC or wherever it is uh, at, at the, at the megaplex is not IMAX. It's certainly not true IMAX. It's a, it's a bigger screen. Sure. And it is, it is a cool experience, but it it's, th- th- there is nothing like seeing an IMAX movie in true IMAX, but um, uh, this uh, this portion of Mike Seibert Radio uh, sponsored by IMAX and the Pacific Science Center. But my point being is, like, I thought that that's where Oppenheimer would be screened. I mean, criminally, they 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 invited us out to see Quantum Mania there. Quantum Mania, for God's sakes, um, we saw a press screening for Guardians Three there. Um, as well as a couple other things. I, I saw the, the uh, 25th anniversary restoration of Titanic, where they re- re-released that in 3D, saw that there. Point being, it's, it, it's, it's a great place to, to see movies, so I'll always sing the praises of it. But when I saw that Oppenheimer was not being shown there for the press screening, that told me something was up. Again, more on that later. But come to find out that the press screening is just at 
regular Degular Pacific Place, our, our usual press screening theater uh, here in downtown Seattle. So I think that's kind of odd. Then I get the press invite for Barbie. And it was it was late coming. Um, it was maybe like a week before the movie. Whereas I've been I've been sitting on the invite for Oppenheimer for forever. And I I'm like, I I'm excited. And I I guess I should kind of talk about at this point what I was looking forward to with regards to these movies before before I actually saw them. Um I I was I had a vague interest in Oppenheimer. Um my interest ratcheted up when it became the other half of the Barbenheimer meme. I'm interested in Oppenheimer because I'm interested in Barbie, not the other way around. Um because of the fallout with Warners, I've I've soured on Christopher Nolan. Um the Dark Knight is probably one of my favorite movies on all, of all time. Um, it, it's certainly amongst my favorite superhero movies. Um, I like a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies. Uh, uh, Memento is required viewing. Uh, Insomnia is is a is a underviewed classic. Uh, the Prestige is pretty good, but I think when it starts getting into Inception and then later Interstellar and and certainly Tenet. In fact, to this day I still have not seen Tenet. But it's it's become clear to me that this is a guy that is up his own ass. And I don't I don't know how much patience or tolerance I have for that type of personality, that type of film director that that you know the the kind of filmmaker that insists you must see the movie in a certain format or you're not actually seeing it. I mean, you've seen the memes at, at this point of like you know people watching Oppenheimer on a on a old um, uh, iPod like iPod Nano or or Zune or you know or or on a on a Game Boy Color or something like that um, and. It's it's cyclical because that that was that was around when uh when Tenet was flopping around because he was so insistent that this be shown theatrically and being be shown on film, but basically suffice it to say I I've I've kind of soured on my affection for Christopher Nolan and you know in in terms of the the spectacle of what I thought Oppenheimer was was going to be. You know, I I didn't quite know what to expect because it's kind of marketed as a you know obviously as as a as a biopic, but there there is a tinge of spectacle there, like you know when you see like you know the the trappings of the atomic bomb and what what that kind of promises. I'm not saying it's it's marketed as an action movie. But it is is certainly marketed in a way that the uh, sequences of explosive violence will be um, awe inspiring and impressive 
in a way that jumping ahead into my my kind of review kind of doesn't deliver on. But I'll uh um I'll, I'll kind of get back to that. But basically, like I anyway, I've I I just I I, w- I was kind of lukewarm, hand wavy, looking forward to it. Um, my friends at work were looking forward to it more than I was, so therefore that made me look forward to it as well. Barbie, on the other hand, as soon as I saw that trailer last year where it was the take on the 2001 Space Odyssey where where Margot Robbie as Barbie is standing there as the monolith, um, I, I that kind of put it on my radar. And I have a I have a weird interest in the Barbie movie also. Uh, that might be unique to uh, folks like me. And by folks like me, I mean toy collectors. Um, This is a movie that is fully sanctioned and supported by Mattel, the makers of Barbie. And there's a component of that that fascinates me. I'm, I'm interested to see what a... Uh, independent filmmaker like Greta Gerwig does with a licensed property. Uh, so that kind of fascinated me. And I'm fascinated to see what kind of story you would tell that's about and features a, a toy property. Um, is it going to be something more straight ahead, like, like Hasbro's The Transformers movies? Um, or is it going to be something a little different? So I, I was kind of intrigued from that from that angle. But then I started seeing more trailers. And you see like this, you know, surreal uh, pink landscape, uh, this, uh, the, this candy-colored Barbie world. And there was the... Um, I don't remember which one of the trailers it was, but it was like, you know, if you love Barbie, this movie is for you. If you hate Barbie, this movie is for you. And that really kind of got my attention. Again, I, I'm gullible for marketing. I, I'm an 80s kid, for God's sakes. I mean, um, you know, uh, deregulation kind of um, has now ingrained with me that uh, full-length toy commercials now stand in for nostalgia uh, uh, for me. So I'm not, I, I, I think I have enough self-awareness about how advertising influences me. But as I'm watching these Barbie trailers, there's a sentiment that's uh, tickling the back of my mind. And I get the feeling that there is, pardon the pun or or pardon the the reference to a different toy franchise there's more to this than meets the eye um and and i've and i had been evangelical about that i i told everybody that i knew i'm just like it looks like this movie is saying something that we don't even know what it is because of the trailers And I'm just like, you know, I just I get the feeling that these trailers are only going to be like like the first act of the movie and that and that this is a movie that's really going to say something. 
Um, and again, I kind of base it off of the uh, previous films from Greta Gerwig, the adaptation of Little Women and and uh, um, Lady Bird, both, uh, I, I would say, pretty potent uh, uh, coming-of-age dramas, uh, uh, specifically for uh, young women, young girls, and um, uh, both really good movies, uh, by the way, too. And um, in case I don't, uh, in, in case I forget to mention this later, I feel that that Barbie, in a in a weird way, is a companion piece to those two movies, to uh to Little Women and Lady Bird. In fact, I was telling one of my friends at work that I I feel like it almost works as a trilogy. If you watch um a uh, Little Women, Lady Bird, and Barbie, that it it's. I, I think there's something there, almost kind of like a three flavors Cornetto uh, um, thing going on because because there are a lot of thematic elements that, that kind of weave between all three of those movies. Um, but anyway, so so suffice it to say, I I think it's fair to say that I was way more interested in seeing Barbie than I was Oppenheimer. But then like the whole Barbenheimer hype train kind of fired up. And, uh-oh, I check the date on the press invite for Barbie, and I see that it is the same day as Oppenheimer. And, oh, snap, wouldn't you know it, that it is at the same theater. So, and, and Pacific Place is a multiplex. It's, a, it's an AMC. But something I have never seen before in my uh, two years or so, two and a half years of uh, being part of press and media to, to get advanced screening access. I, I don't know if I've seen two movies at the same time at the same theater. I've, I, I have seen movies on the same day, but at different theaters or at different times, but never same move. Uh, two different movies, same theater, same time. Crazy. Never seen that before. And so I I sent an email back to the rep, and I was like, "Hey man, any chance of adding a, another screening to for Barbie, either before or after? Um, I I really want to see it, and I." Um, I don't think we'll be able to choose. Maybe put it earlier in the day so maybe the press has the opportunity to do a, a full Barbenheimer. And I didn't hear anything back. A few days later, I get a new press invite for Barbie for the day before. Uh, the day before Oppenheimer. So Oppenheimer didn't move. Um, and this becomes significant for a couple reasons. So on the day we went to Barbie and I was talking with the reps, basically Warner Brothers was game enough to add another press screening um, and to have it the day before. So they didn't move the other screening. That's, that still happens, and I'll, t I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but they added another screening specifically for press. So it was a press only screening, uh, which was really cool. And 
knowing what we know now, and I, I know sometimes it, it, it's, it's impossible to predict things, but the reason why I'm spending so much time talking about this and laying all this track is that, you know, I mean, they're competing studios, obviously, but specifically since it's Warner Brothers going up against Christopher Nolan at Universal, this is huge. And this is um, really big on Warner Brothers. They didn't have to do this. And given the success of the movie, um, breaking all of the records, they didn't have to. So it tells me that they believed enough in the movie that they wanted to give everybody the chance to see it because they could have just said tough nuts and say, you know what, that, that, that screening is what it is. And, um, you know, you either make it or you don't. Um, so I, I was impressed that Warner brothers was able to, um, add that, add that press screening. So go to the movie. And again, as I said, it's press and media only. And even with that, I was surprised by how many folks were on theme. Um, I had a, a one of my coworkers change into a pink shirt. Um, he he went he went with his wife as a, as his date, but I was I was I was surprised, um, and and it was pretty cool. Like so, the the reps from Ally Global Marketing uh, printed out. The the press markers, you know, it's like this seat is reserved for press and they use the pinkest paper that they could find. Um, and I, I was chatting with uh, some of my fellow media folks. And so like they, they put up like the, the Barbie title card and I was doing this thing where I was like leaning back in my seat. And it was interesting to see the entire auditorium just uh just bathed in pink light it was just kind of something i hadn't seen before it was uh it was pretty neat and, and again you know uh, uh folks were dressed up um i wouldn't say cosplay uh, i don't think that's appropriate but like you know uh, um a lot of folks wore like nice pink dresses uh that that kind of thing there was a lot of folks that were dressed nice that just happened to be in in screaming fuchsia um, so, um, as far as the movie goes, I, I liked it quite a lot. It is one of my favorite movies of the year. I don't think it, it, it is my favorite. I think that's still, uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, but, but this is up there and obviously it's a very different kind of movie. It is delightfully subversive, friggin' weird. Um, it, it's strange and bizarre. Um, but in a in a thought provoking way. But the the thing that impressed me, I mean, I got out of it what I was looking for because I had predicted that this movie was going to say something, and I was not disappointed. It has uh, complex themes of gender dynamics and existential dread and your place in the world. Uh, but it's also about mothers and daughters and little girls and young women. And it's about our relationships to toys. Um, 
and all of that is is baked into this delightfully surreal packaging that is um, approachable and digestible, and it's funny. Like I um. I, I, I take issue with, I would mentioned this as a press screening, and I'm going to drop a dime here. I, I try not to do this kind of stuff a lot, but it really kind of bothered me. Um, there's a YouTuber named uh, Jeremy Johns. You've probably heard of him. You've probably watched his videos. Um, I, I, I know this because he has like, like 120 million subscribers or some nonsense like that. Uh, but anyway, so so this dude is from the Seattle area, and I see him at almost every press screening I go to. I don't know him. We're not friends. I've met him a couple times, um, but um, but we're by no means homies. We're not arch enemies either. I I I think I'm over hyping this already. But um, in his review of Barbie, he talked about how. Uh, tepid the audience reaction was the most i laughed in the movie was specifically when ryan gosling was doing stuff rest of the time uh crickets from me and the rest of the audience that guy is a liar and i can tell you that guy is a liar because he was one two three four five six people away from me in the same row in the same screening in the same theater and regardless of what other people were doing, I was cackling my ass off. Uh, there is a joke about the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, and I lost it. I popped my top, and I I, I popped for this so hard. Like um, that that was one of several moments in the movie where I am howling uncontrollably like like i'm robert de niro in cape fear just like <laughs> just like that that like like deep from the bottom of your gut laughing um it just it 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 tickled me that hard and made me laugh so much and because of that, there, it, there, there was some infectious laughing around me. The folks I went to the the um, screening with were laughing, but with the um, uh, it was funny. I, I had mentioned a, um, a coworker of mine. He um, was in the lower part of the theater, so he was like you know several rows ahead of me, and he was telling the story at work. And he's like, yeah, there was just. There was some guy in the back who just just could not stop laughing. It was like like deep chortling laughter. And he kind of looks over at me. I know he was making fun of me, but but still, I'm just like, yeah, he's me. I'm that guy. I had a blast with the movie. I um I really enjoyed it. And I was very open-minded and receptive uh for the themes. Um and Coming out of the coming out of the screening, you know, I've talked about the ritual. If you talk to the nice lady with the clipboard, so I talked to the nice lady with the clipboard. I was one of the last people. I waited all the way through the credits. There is nothing at the end. However, stick around through the beginning of the credits. They show 
uh, some of the the dolls that are characters in the movie. Um, uh, dolls that you wouldn't expect to be real. Like you're watching the movie, it's like that can't be real. There, there's no way those are real. They're, they are all real. Everything in that movie is based on a toy. You know, from from the outfits to the to the vehicles to the homes to everything, and it's it's again, I was I was very interested from a a toy collector standpoint. Um, so I, I I thought it was really cool to have so many toy toyetic moments in uh in the movie. Um, but so so I I talked to the nice lady with the clipboard. I I tell her what I thought, and I told her to thank the studio rep for arranging another screening um, because, you know, so many of us didn't um, didn't want to choose. Um, and they, they shared with me that basically almost everybody on their press list, uh, you know, sent a email very similar to um uh, to what I had, but I was the only one that had specifically mentioned Barbenheimer. So um so I, I, I thought I thought that was kind of funny. But as as I'm giving my review, I I tell the rep, I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't have to choose because I would have chosen Barbie. And that was my plan up until they offered another screening. Like, I was going to let my coworkers go to Oppenheimer. Um, I was going to go to Barbie, and then we would do, like, one Barbenheimer review, um, that that kind of thing. Um, ended up not going that way. We ended up doing both. Um, but you already know that. But um, that's kind of how invested I was specifically in Barbie. Um I I think it's wonderfully ambitious and I'm glad to see that it's paid off uh, both for Greta Gerwig as a filmmaker but then also Warner, Warner Brothers and Mattel which again does kind of give me the mixed feelings it's like am I am I actively rooting for uh the mega corporations that are that are uh satirized and parodied in in this movie I don't know um, it, it's a bit of a thinker, but I also left Barbie, you know, kind of, again, kind of on a high, but also with like a little bit of feeling of existential dread. I think it, it gives you enough themes to, uh, noodle on, um, and, and it gives you things to noodle on if, uh, if you're a man or if you're specifically a cisgendered white man as a, as myself. So I, I kind of found myself kind of pondering life um, in, in a good way. Like, you know, the, these, these are, these are things that we should kind of take a step back and look in the mirror. Um, I really enjoyed the performances uh, Margot Robbie obviously is the living embodiment of Barbie, but she carries the surprising dramatic weight of this movie very, very well. I mean, she's a terrific actor and she's really great in this role because, you know, she she oscillates between, you know, fun, bubbly, happy Barbie and 
and existential dread Barbie. And there, there's this, um, there's this lovely scene when Barbie is in the real world and she sees a older woman at a bus stop and the, the exchange she, she has with this lady, it's just like there, there's, there, there's a, 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 a stillness, a, a quiet serenity to the, I don't know, um, um, casual ease that Margot Robbie brings to the role. That's like, it, it feels like it's a very actory performance without feeling like it. Nothing in the performance um, feels forced. I also think that Ryan Gosling is going to win an Oscar for this. His, his turn as Ken is terrific. And if anybody understood the assignment, it's Ryan Gosling because he's, he, he's just magnificent and really steals the show in a movie that's full of scene-stealing uh, performances. And it, it kind of underscores one of the other uh, weird things about this, this movie that, that I want to talk about. Because, I mean, again, it's, it's not perfect. It, it's not a perfect movie. It is overstuffed. It is rudderless um, occasionally. It's it's bloated and sometimes kind of loses the thread of, of of the narrative. But I appreciate the ambition, and I I am surprised and amazed and beside myself that not only is this a movie that exists that was allowed to exist by. Two mega corporations, a a giant toy company in Mattel and a big ass movie studio in Warner Brothers that somehow this got by enough people's desks that this is a movie that that is allowed to exist. But even more confounding than that in the best way possible, it's a movie that's successful. Barbie is this year's Top Gun Maverick. Barbie is the movie that saved Hollywood in 2023. Now, whether it deserves saving or not is perhaps a conversation for a um, different time. I do kind of want to talk about, though, the hype train for a movie and kind of the mechanics of that. I want to talk about review embargoes. Now, I had the opportunity to see both of these movies the week before they came out. And seeing preview screenings is is occasionally an interesting exercise in that depending upon when I get to see the movies or or when the press screening in Seattle is, it's one of two things. Either the movie has already come out in other markets. Um, no, I'm sorry, I misspoke. That it's been screened for the press in other markets. So, for example, Indiana Jones screened at Cannes earlier this year, months before any of us saw it. So by the time I got to see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, it already had the stink of death on it. So it's my viewing of that movie kind of became an exercise in confirmation bias. And um, conversely, though, a movie like Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, I got to see that, what, Three weeks before it came out, I uh, we we saw Top Gun Maverick almost a month before it came out, 
And that was a movie where we knew it was something special. But what we didn't know is the global phenomenon that it would go on to be. My point being is that sometimes in these press screenings, something delightful happens. You have no choice but to form your own opinion and not necessarily be influenced by like early reviews or word on the street um, or your own confirmation bias. And that was really kind of my experience with Barbenheimer. Like I had a feeling of what to expect, as I had said, you know, it's like I, I had this suspicion that the movie was going to say something, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. The movie could have been anything. Turns out it was everything. And I, you know, I, I, I pushed all my chips in on, um, on the experience, but I don't know. It, it just kind of underscores some of the rotten takes that I saw going into Barbie. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to get more into right wing outrage in, in a little bit, but the thing that really kind of blew me away is kind of like the, the preloaded outrage and kind of like the, uh, well, proactive outrage, being outraged about a thing that isn't out yet. I remember I saw Piers Morgan uh, kind of hauling off about the movie says something pithy to the effect of like, you know, uh, Barbie is anti-Ken and and she's not just anti-Ken, it's anti-men. And I saw a lot of takes like that. And the thing that really bothered me is that was a presupposition of what the movie was given the posters. And, and the posters do say, you know, Barbie, she's everything, he's just Ken. Which I do like the memes. Uh, there, there have been some really good memes on that. But, um... And, and even from the trailer, too, it's, you know, you get a sense of what this movie is and combo that with Greta Gerwig uh, directing, you know, it's going to be some kind of coming of age postmodern feminist movie. There, there's no way to avoid that. There, there really, truly isn't. And I don't think it's something that should be avoided, but leave it to fucking white men, old white men uh, to, you know, get outraged about a thing uh, before it's even a thing. And the reason why that irritates me disproportionately this time around, because that that stuff kind of bothers me anyway, but really bothers me this time around is they don't even have the good sense to watch the movie. And that's why the Piers Morgan thing really bothered me. He's railing against a movie that hasn't come out yet. And I saw a lot of takes on Twitter. I saw a lot of takes on the internet uh, that almost come across as reviews, but for a movie they haven't seen yet. And I can understand um, being not excited for something or... I don't know. I'm trying to find a way to tie in the stink of death that Indiana Jones and the Knob of Knowledge had on it, where, you know, we saw some early reviews. We knew it was going to be a stinker, and and turns out it kind of is more of a confirmation bias thing. So I would imagine 
there are segments of the conservative audience that were looking for Barbie to be an anti-man, you know, we really need to kind of rally the men's rights activists. That's a real thing. Gross. Um, To, you know, kind of rally against the outrage of against against this movie and watching it through the kaleidoscope of confirmation bias. And that that's, you know, when I talk about the Ben Shapiro stuff in in a little bit, that's going to kind of uh, come into play also, because you can you can go into a movie with a bias and and an agenda or you could be somebody like me who is, you know, thinking that there's going to be something there looking for that extra something and then finding it and then being delighted with it. So I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to particularly dwell on it um, uh, much more, but I, I like the movie. Um, and in the time since I've seen the movie and since it's taken me a while to record, I have seen a couple uh, think pieces that have, have popped up, but I, I liked um, I, I like this piece from L, uh, L Magazine, not a publication that I frequent, but they put out a a cool article. Um, Let's never stop questioning what Barbie is really about, and it it kind of gives a kind of a bulleted um, uh, format of what the movie is trying to say, and I I think that kind of is consistent with uh, with my views as well. But this gives me something to read and have in front of me. But it's uh, uh, it, it's about having an existential crisis and also death. Uh, it's about Ken becoming a villain or something. Um, it's uh, it's about the inescapable clutch of corporations. It's about feminism. Well, yeah, duh. Um, and it's about the swan song of girlhood and it's about Barbie. And, and I think that's, uh, that's all very well said. And I, you know, one of the things that I've heard is like, well, you know, this movie wasn't for me, you know, that, and, and I get that, but I also feel that that's kind of a reductive dismissive take as well. I think it's okay to consume media that's not for you. I think it's, it's healthy to consume media that's not for you. And, you know, Maybe get you to think about a thing or two about a thing or two. I don't know that that's that's just kind of that's kind of Barbie in a disproportionately large uh, nutshell. Um, let's um, let's switch directions and we go to night two of the Barbenheimer uh, experience and with my viewing of Oppenheimer. So um, this this was an interesting experience and I think. I have talked about this before, but I wonder how much the theater-going experience actually influences my opinion of the movie. Um, Because jumping all the way to the end, I don't like this movie very much. Um, It is, it's a slog. It's bloated. It's pretentious it's ponderous and just just the sheer fucking hubris of Christopher Nolan you know insisting that the this movie being exhibited on film and 
I don't know. I just um so our our theater going experience for me was kind of rushed because it's a three hour movie. And usually usually these uh screenings start around seven and I usually get off uh between six and six thirty. Um this time for Oppenheimer the time was, well, the time had shifted. So when it was going to be at the Uptown, originally it was going to be six. So it was like, well, hey, no way I can make that because I, I can't be in two places at the same time. But um, when they moved the screening to a different theater, they changed the time to 6.30. Um, tight, but not impossible. So, but that meant that I had to be in a rush and I had to hustle. So I rush, I hustle, I make it to the theater, I send my coworkers ahead of me, I rendezvous with them. And it's interesting, as I had told you at the beginning of this episode, that they were having the Barbie uh, advanced screening that same day. So, so the screening that I initially wasn't going to be able to still continued. And it's it would I would love to be a fly on the wall in there because, you know, all the press had seen it the night before. So um, but any everybody's all done up in pink, all all the all the reps. But I get upstairs. This uh, theater happens to have two floors. And I don't know if this is the studio or the theater or the promotion company or all of those things together. But. This was a party, like pink balloons and a photo booth and a DJ. And it was it was a heavy party atmosphere as we're getting ready to trudge into uh, experience three hours of Oppenheimer. So we go in, I get sat down. I'm already kind of hot from running around and rushing to get ready, but there's one inescapable truth that we uh, that we noticed. The air conditioning wasn't working. And I'm sure it's hot where you're at. It was especially hot that that evening. So it's it, it was a rough go. In fact, um, when we got out of the movie, we spent the best the better portion of our talk in the lobby talking about how hot we were actually were and how sweaty and how uncomfortable it was. So it was, it, the movie was already a slog, but sitting through the air conditioning, not working made it um, unbearable is the, is the only word that, that I can think of. It was, it was unbearable and it was, um, you know, I, I say that we suffered through it. Um, both figuratively and literally. Um, I knew there was going to be problems when they turned down the house lights. And first of all, the screening started late, probably because they're trying to figure out how to run film on a projector that hasn't run film for, for a good long time. It was a film print. Um, and... They turned down the house lights, sort of, but not all of them. And there was one light in the middle of the auditorium that um, you got to change that light bulb because it started strobing and flashing. 
And it was 15 minutes into the movie uh, before they figured out how to turn off the rest of the lights. So this this is already a pretty unbearable um, experience between the air conditioning and the lights and all of that. And, and that's before the movie even really gets going. Look, I think Killian Murphy is going to win an Oscar for this performance. Um, it's a very complete performance. It's a thorough performance. He's terrific. He is not what's wrong with this movie. I, um, it, it's interesting. It's so, I, I think a, a lot of the problems come from expectations. You know, it's, it's odd for a sobering, stirring biopic to be directed with a blockbuster superhero mentality. Um, there, there's so many shots and scenes and interactions in this movie that um, the, the, the tonality doesn't belong. Like, there's a, you, you, it's all over the trailers, but Oppenheimer has this, this interaction with Albert Einstein. And, it, and the way that it lingers... It's like we're in a Marvel movie. There, there's a um, deep into the movie. There's a name drop of John F. Kennedy, and it's dropped with the reverence of Samuel L. Jackson wanting to tell uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man about the Avengers Initiative. It's like, I mean, it, it really feels like it's like a weird bullshit se- sequel setup, uh, which was again very odd. Um, uh, as I already said, the the film broke halfway through, so it torpedoed a lot of the tension. Um, and the movie is good when it's good. Like, I, I kind of like the perspective of intercutting back and forth between different periods of time. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. My problem is, is that it's too bloated and not cohesive in its narrative. And I feel like I'm the only one who feels that way. I've seen a lot of Christopher Nolan apologists out on, out on Twitter. And, but again, much like with the Piers Morgan thing, railing against Barbie being anti-man. And incidentally, I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier. I, I don't think Barbie is anti-man. I, I think it's anti-anti-man, if, if, that, uh, if that take make it, makes any lick, lick of sense. But um, the performances become a cavalcade of cameos. Everybody is in this movie. And it kind of becomes, oh, hey, it's that guy, colon, the movie. Um, a lot of big name uh, actors kind of come in and fart around for a couple scenes and then disappear. Some of the cameos are pretty good. Others are not. Um, One of the burdens of having seen the movie ahead of time and having to form my own opinions, I do not like the Robert Downey Jr. performance. I, I think he's farting around with a ham sandwich, just chewing the scenery up. People are thinking he's going to get a Oscar nomination for that. I think those people are crazy. Um, 
I, I just I, I just don't see it. I did not connect with the the performance and I felt it was very gimmicky. Um, I also didn't care for the Emily Blunt performance. Like she spends the majority of the of the movie just drinking. And there and there is some pretty convincing drinking um, in there as well. And she does have one scene that does bring down the house and then it's made clear why she's in this movie. But the entirety before that, it's just like, why, why, why are you here? And it feels like it's all of these actors wanting to go out of their way to want to work with the main man, Christopher Nolan. And I just, I don't know. It just, it, it didn't, it, it, it just didn't resonate with me. And I think a lot of it becomes the expectations I had. And I had, I had some interesting expectations in that I was expecting um, as weird as it sounds, some degree of blockbuster spectacle. Like, you know, one of the takes that I've heard is like, well, as soon as they um, blow off the bomb, you can leave. There's an entire hour of the movie left after, after that happens. Um, I don't know if I feel that way myself, but I do feel the movie kind of goes nowhere after that as well. So actual mileage may vary. I would be very interested to to get your take on that. But I I don't know. I just I, I just found it to be pretentious and slow. And by by the time the movie was over, I could not get out of there quick enough. I cannot remember a time I darted out of my seat uh, faster. And and I was I was so warm and uncomfortable. I I I was sweating through my jeans. My jeans were damp from uh from sweating from being so stifling hot in in that theater. And I wonder, is it some kind of bullshit meta thing where you know ooh to create more tension we're gonna make these people uncomfortable it's like i i could see christopher nolan saying some bullshit like that i i wouldn't put it past him at a time where you know insisting that the that the movie be be shown on film um i just i don't know why i'm missing out on what the movie is trying to say um again i i appreciate that Oppenheimer is a uh, interesting and conflicted figure. I and I think that's where the movie is the strongest. But everything else around that is is again just a a ponderous slog. And I don't know if and how much that take is influenced by my personal experience watching it in a, in a stifling movie theater. Um, but th- but the other thing that really bothers me, and I um, I think I mentioned this earlier. So here in Seattle, we're blessed in having a true IMAX theater at the Pacific Science Center. Um, I found a article here from King Five, our local NBC affiliate. You won't be able to watch Oppenheimer in its intended format in the Seattle area. Only thirty IMAX locations worldwide have the capability to play the six. 100 pound IMAX 70 millimeter real and no theaters in Washington state are on the list. Christopher Nolan, the director has some instructions for moviegoers who want to experience Oppenheimer in the best way possible. Go see it 
in IMAX 70 millimeter format. So what's the problem with that? There are only 30 theaters worldwide, including 19 in the United States, screening Oppenheimer in that format, and none of them are in Washington. The closest theater that can play movies in the IMAX 70 millimeter format is the Cineplex Cinemas Langley and IMAX in Langley, British Columbia, just about a two hour drive from Seattle. So to see it, you have to go to a different country. Uh, So what's the difference? Most theaters crop the IMAX aspect ratio horizontally, which means you may miss out on what Nolan described as, quote unquote, 3D without glasses. Since IMAX screens are intended to use the, the viewer's entire peripheral vision, the IMAX prints are so extreme that they weigh about 600 pounds and are 11 miles long, according to the Associated Press. The sharpness and the clarity and the depth of the image is unparalleled, Nolan said. The headline for me is by shooting on IMAX 70 millimeter, you're really letting the screen disappear. You're getting a feeling of 3D without the glasses. You've got a huge screen and you're filling the peripheral vision of the audience. You're immersing them in the world of the film. That is why movie buffs on social media are warning against, quote unquote, Kroppenheimer, which I think is kind of funny. Um there, there will also be over 170 millimeter prints, a fabulous presentation, according to Nolan, sent to theaters around the world at major chains and many independent locations like the Music Box in Chicago and the AFI Silver in Washington, D.C. So I also went to the Pacific Science Center website and they do have a blurb about Oppenheimer. Exclusively in IMAX theaters, sequences shot with IMAX film cameras will expand vertically to fill the entire screen, allowing moviegoers to experience more of the image with unprecedented detail and clarity. That combined with next-generation IMAX precision sound creates a truly immersive experience. Christopher Nolan designed Oppenheimer with IMAX in mind, capturing the film with IMAX cameras amongst the highest resolution film cameras in the world and refining the film throughout post-production in an IMAX theater to further optimize how audiences will experience the film in IMAX. Pacific Science Center has a dual IMAX laser system in the Boeing IMAX theater and is the only place in Washington state where you can see IMAX footage full screen with the full IMAX ratio. And and it's funny, even that, that should be the optimum way to experience this movie. And it pisses me off that I'm not here hopping up and down saying, you need to watch this movie in this format. This stuff really bothers me, where it's like, oh man, the only way to truly experience this, to see it in my in my true vision, is to see it in this obscure format that's only accessible to some parts in some parts of the world. And that's not what the movies are for. The movies are supposed to be inclusive community spaces. Uh, jam-packed theaters full of folks yelling and cheering for the dumb cameos in in the flash movie as as much as that that makes me angry i can at least appreciate that's what the movie going experience is for so i don't know this just feels to me again that it's christopher nolan unchecked dude needs to get an editor um we uh we joked that it's like oh man 
this movie has no editing. You know, what What could they have possibly left on the cutting room floor? Literally nothing you can eat off of it. Everything is on, on the screen. And I can appreciate the perspective of the spectacle of the movie being an immersive experience. But don't market the movie to me like it's the goddamn Dark Knight or something like that. And I don't know. I, I just, I think I've said this already, but I think the the ideal way to watch this movie, and I do think it is worth your time, is um, to watch it on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon as you're sleeping off a hangover, where you're drifting in and out of consciousness because there's a lot of talking. And I I don't know. It's like I, I don't understand the push for large format 3D without the glasses, that whatever. Um, isn't that the case? So do you get that same experience if you just sit real close to your TV? I hate to be a anti-snob, and I do wonder, I, I have to be cautious and do gut checks with myself to see how snobby I have become. I don't consider myself to be a quote-unquote film critic. Um, I, I consider myself to be like a movie fan, but I even even using the word critic is... Um, is bristling to me. Uh, I, I consider myself to be an enthusiast and I feel like I can speak perhaps a little more esoteric and philosophically than, than maybe others in the same space, but that doesn't make me like an authority on things. But I do wonder the more movies I consume in this way, how much of that critical eye comes through and maybe how much I don't enjoy stuff because I'm I'm looking to be critical about it. I don't go out of my way to be contrarian, but I think there are times that I do accidentally find myself being contrarian just because I um I don't know, like it's and and I think to tie in the Barbenheimerness of it, I was blown away by what Barbie made me feel what what thinking about the themes of the movie made me feel and i think i was disproportionately disappointed by the lack of thought and consideration i had after oppenheimer you know you heard me go through the 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 how to's on the double feature and what to expect um uh barbie is supposed to be a light party movie whereas Oppenheimer is more about the existential dread. I had more of an existential crisis. Well, not crisis. I, I, I had more. Barbie is a more, ha, has more things to say about existentialism than Oppenheimer does. And I think that's where my expectations weren't met. And I think that's where I ended up being disappointed by Oppenheimer. Like I really kind of wanted to feel uh, a pathos and, and really kind of um, existential dread. And, um, and I didn't, I just, I just, I just felt like my pants were wet, you know, more than anything. And just really kind of disappointed by what the spectacle was because even then it's like, Oh man, but the bomb sequence is really cool. And I'm like, I guess, 
it, it really didn't do anything for me. And it's probably because somebody will say, well, you watched it at the multiplex. I'm like, yeah, but I at least I at least saw it in 70 millimeter on film. So that's at least something. And it just did nothing for me. I just I just felt um, I don't know. I, I, I just kind of felt uh, let down. So I did kind of uh, put up on social media. I was like, I have survived the double feature. Ask me anything. So, um, so I, so I got a really thought provoking question from Eileen, uh, Cave Mouse TV, out on Instagram, uh, home of the Mountain Dew review. I've learned more about Mountain Dew from from watching her Mountain Dew reviews than than I ever needed to know. Um, uh, really fun stuff. But anyways, she asked me. Did you gain anything from seeing the movies as a double feature? Like, do you feel the movies complement each other in any way? Or is it just fun to feel like you're part of the meme? And I, I thought about it. it. It took me like a day and a half uh, to get back to her. But what I ended up writing was it's, a, it's the fun of the meme more than anything. There really isn't any advantage to watching them together other than that, which is kind of a bummer because I really liked what Barbie had to say and I felt let down that Oppenheimer didn't pick up on those same themes of existential dread and place in the world. So um, my my friend Lita out on Twitter, at Lala Alita, the a.k.a. the Internet's number one Alita One stan, went... Full Barbenheimer. She uh, she saw the um, the movies after they came out as a double feature with an outfit change, and was uh, was really all in on the meme, even even more so than I was. Um, so I decided to take the question that Eileen asked me and and put it through Talita. I asked her. I go serious question. Did you get anything out of seeing the movies together other than participation in the meme? Uh, common themes. Uh, it was fun, but for me, the experience made me rate Barbie higher, and I judged Oppenheimer lower than I might have otherwise had I seen them separately. And in a separate post, I've I've compared my viewing of Barbenheimer the same way that I saw. Uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, and then Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So we saw, we saw Mission Impossible first, and I really liked that movie, and it blew my hair back. Um, I saw Indiana Jones the following day, and I did not connect with it as much. And because there are some similar things that happened, like there's there's car chases and uh, and and a sequence on a train. There, there, there is a weird amount of things that happen that are similar, and every version of it, Indiana Jones was far uh, more inferior, and Mission Impossible was certainly superior. I don't know why that movie isn't doing well at the box office. Go see it; it rules. It is, it is my favorite movie of the year uh, so far. I, I had a blast with it. Um, but anyway, I, I judged Mission Impossible retroactively higher because of how much lower I viewed Indiana Jones. And if I had seen them a week apart, I don't know if I would feel exactly the same way. So I think that the connectivity and the proximity of them influences my thoughts as well. But so too, 
is how I feel about Barbenheimer. I I saw Barbie first, really liked it. Saw Oppenheimer second, really didn't like it. So I think because of that, I like Barbie that much more, and now I like Oppenheimer that much less. So anyway, Lita gets back to me. She she writes a, a very thoughtful thread here. Uh, common themes I felt were few and far between. Inherently, their tone and content serve as a juxtaposition, a binary. However, it was interesting to me that Barbie explored the quote-unquote fall of God, a la irrefutable idea of Barbie becoming human versus a man's journey to becoming God, which I found incredibly um, insightful. If you want to get granular, you can also look at the classic quote-unquote power corrupts trope while wielding so much power, how does it change affect them? Thinking here about Ken and the patriarchy in Barbie land and Oppenheimer with the atomic bomb, both radically changed their worlds through power. Keeping with this, there's also the fallout, how Ken's patriarchy destroyed Barbie land and the literal nuclear moral fallout following the events in Japan. So actually, in broad strokes, there are some similarities, but come in different shades. Stories are the sum of their tropes, exclamation point. And I thought that that was incredibly insightful and a far better distillation than what I could say um, that I've spent almost two hours of of your time um, talking about there. But yeah, so um, switching gears for a minute, I I had mentioned earlier I wanted to talk about the uh, backlash, the kind of outrage, uh, the disproportionate outrage towards, uh, well, not not towards these movies because it, it's not not so much folks are outraging against the Enheimer of the Barbenheimer experience, but a lot of uh, a lot of folks on the conservative right seem to be bent out of shape at Barbie, as I'm sure you could imagine. Um, I want to start with notorious internet twerp Ben Shapiro. And this, I, I want to spend a few minutes on this because um, I think both sides of the political aisle find ways to troll the other. Let me see if I can explain. So this, um, there was a tweet that Ben Shapiro put out about going to watch the Barbie movie. Uh, the The caption reads, the tweet reads, my producers dragged me to see Barbie and it was one of the most woke movies I've ever seen. My, pool, my full review of this flaming garbage heap of a film will be out on my YouTube channel tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern. And it's a photo of Ben Shapiro standing in front of a full standee-sized Barbie poster, specifically the one where it's got the tagline, she's everything, he's just Ken. Now, he is standing next to the poster looking very put upon, and he's, um, you know, look, looking very frustrated. He's got a a notepad in his hand, but there's also something else. He's dressed exactly like Ken from the I'm Just Ken dance number in the Barbie movie. 
And I I saw a few other folks posting about the same thing, so I didn't feel the compulsion to get into uh, that discourse. But then I thought about it for a while, and I started seeing the numbers on the tweet. Now, granted, this was, oh gosh, over a week ago, almost two weeks ago at this point, um, as of this recording, Um. The tweet has 55.4 million views, 5,100 retweets, and 12,000 quote tweets, along with 68,000 likes. So I think it's safe to say that this tweet is pretty viral, but it also has a lopsided ratio as well. And once I saw the direction that wind is blowing it made me realize something that I, I think there is a part of me that thinks that this tweet was set out as bait. And I'm sorry to say my fellow citizens of Twitter.com, we took the bait. Um, so I put out a tweet uh, recently and wrote, I'm cynical enough to believe that everything in this twerps post is deliberate and weaponized, including the outfit to drive interactions and clicks. I'm not smart enough to not fall for it, but I can at least see it for what it is. And then uh, uh, Lita responded to that in a, in a tweet saying it's so painfully staged and deliberate that it's almost, almost laughable the all black clothing, the notepad, the apparently exasperated expression, all of it reeks of clout desperation. Wonder how insufferable he was to sit next to during the film? Answer, very. So, again, I, I, I feel like we kind of took the bait. And I have an even more cynical perspective on it. Uh, like Lita said, I think everything is staged. I think a... Uh, like an associate producer uh, or production assistant or somebody lower on the food chain had already seen the movie, knew about the I'm just Ken sequence and said, you really want to own the libs or uh, or more accurately drive up interaction uh, dress in this outfit because um, not to go Twitter stalking, but like this is not this dude's usual outfit. Uh, you know, he wears a lot of like collared shirts and stuff. And so to have like a, a snug plain black tee and a very specific belt that looks uh, uh, similar to Ken's, this is all uh, very deliberate. And the thing that's, that's disappointing is that even ratio drives the algorithm. So if you're if you're reacting negatively to a post, I mean, this is why there's so much negativity on social media, because basically if you, you know, uh, uh, like down votes or or, you know, say snarky comments or, or or just a jerk or whatever, all of that negativity feeds into the algorithm. And it's it's kind of like when a bratty child is looking for attention 
and they act up and break stuff and like get in trouble, they don't know the difference between bad attention and good attention. It's all just attention. And so that's what this tweet reminds me of. And at a time where Barbie is giving me existential dread, um, I, I'm really kind of thinking about the nature of social media as well. Um, but it doesn't stop there. I found this article uh, from Hollywood Reporter uh, half a week ago that kind of breaks down uh, some of the conservative backlash. Uh, Elon Musk has entered the Barbie chat by Mark <clears throat> has entered the Barbie chat by mocking the summer's biggest boss office hit on Twitter or X or whatever he's calling it this week. The billionaire wrote, quote, if you take a shot every time Barbie says the word patriarchy, you'll pass out before the movie ends. Musk was responding to a Barbenheimer meme that compared Twitter to Barbie and his new X name for his social network to Oppenheimer. He's the latest to accuse Barbie from filmmaker Greta Gerwig and starting Margot Robbie of being left-wing propaganda in the wake of the movie, earning the biggest opening weekend of the year. Uh, Barbie follows stereotypical Barbie and Ken as they leave Barbie land and journey into the real world following an existential crisis. Now, Mattel executives have tried to keep the film from being viewed as political. Robbie Brenner, Mattel Films executive producer, and the said the film was, quote, not a feminist movie in an interview with Time. Uh, Robbie seemed surprised by that claim. Who said that, she reportedly asked. It's not that it is or it isn't. It's a movie. It's a movie that's got so much in it. Um, I don't think you know your own material because I... I don't think it's unfair to say that Barbie is a feminist movie. It is a great many things, and it is a great many other things. But to not realize that it is a feminist movie is, is kind of short-sighted. Sorry, I stopped reading the article and given a, a commentary. Uh, back to the article. Uh, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro went viral over the weekend after breathlessly ripping the film for 43 minutes on YouTube in a click that's been viewed 1.6 million times. Quote, the basic sort of premise of the film, politically speaking, is that men and women are on two sides and they hate each other. And literally, the only way you can have a happy world is if the women ignore the men and the men ignore the women. He fumed. He predicted Barbie is absolutely going to fall off a cliff at the box office. Repeat business is going to be non-existent. Shapiro also set fire to Barbie dolls on a barbecue in protest. His review generated plenty of online mocking of its own. Uh, quote, they finally make a movie for people who are 12 inches tall with no genitalia and those who don't even like it. Uh, that from a tweet from comedy writer Jesse McLaren. And... Um, I want to stop there uh, for a sec because, again, that underscores a fundamental misunderstanding of Barbie. Um, and I'm realizing now that this this uh, supposed uh, Barbie Oppenheimer Barbenheimer review is very heavy on Barbie, very light on Oppenheimer. I just I, I don't really have a whole lot to say about that movie other than 
than than what I have already. But the the movie is not anti man. I think it's kind of anti anti man. I I think it has a lot to say about codependency and companionship and our place in our relationships and how we feel about those relationships. So I think to say that the theme is that men and women hate each other and the only way they can exist is to ignore each other is, um, is reductive and not incredibly insightful or intelligent. Back to the article. Writing for the New York Post, Piers Morgan opined, quote, if I made a movie mocking women as useless dunderheads, constantly attacking the matriarchy and depicting all things feminist as toxic bullshit, I wouldn't just be canceled, I'd be executed. The movie achieves exactly what it wanted to achieve, and that is to establish the matriarchy as the perfect antidote to the patriarchy, when in fact, that's just the same concept that they asked us all to detest in the first place. Again, a fucking moron. Um, spoilers for the end of the movie. Barbie realizes that the way things were in Barbie land didn't work 100% also. And she sees the, you know, how she treated Ken and apologizes to him. Now, I don't, it, it's, it's unclear what the fate of Barbie land becomes if it's if it is a more inclusive environment especially given Barbie's choice at the at the end of the movie but uh, again it's I, I I just feel that the lessons that Barbie and Ken learned from their time in the real world is to have a more balanced and nuanced and inclusive society. Um, maybe I'm just reading too much into it at this point. Uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, a notorious asshole, um, accused the movie of kissing up to the Chinese Communist Party because they want to make money selling the movie in China. End quote, for its alleged inclusion of the nine dash line on a map that favors China's territorial claims to the South China Sea, yet he admits he didn't see the film. I've seen the map and shut up. I mean, again, just like I, the thing I also feel about the movie about Barbie is that it is, it is a litmus test and it is holding up a mirror. Um, you see in it what you want to see reflected back. So, I was in it for more complex themes and I was rewarded by having something for me to think about. And the things that, um, and, and there were things in the movie that kind of made me squirm and that's okay. That means it's working. You know, I, I think some of the things that I laughed at the most were the direct barbs that kind of stings a little bit. It's like, ooh. And um, so I, I think likewise with this conservative's outrage, they're seeing what they want to see and are imprinting and projecting 
their own ideology on to it. Uh, podcaster Matt Walsh and other uh, notorious asshole um, who made the anti-trans documentary. Um, I, I'm disappointed that this Hollywood Reporter uh, article doesn't list the documentary uh, in quotes. But anyway, the, this is the 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 dickhead that did uh, uh, what is a woman. Um, he dubbed Barbie, quote, the most aggressively anti-man feminist propaganda fest ever put to film. Ginger Gates, alleged notorious asshole, uh, the wife of Republican Florida Representative Matt Gates, actual confirmed asshole, called for a Barbie boycott criticizing Gosling's Ken as, quote, unquote, disappointingly low T and beta energy. That's something that a grown man said. How disappointing. And yet the vast, vast majority of Barbie viewers don't seem to agree. Barbie has not only a 90% positive critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, but an actual 90% positive audience score, resulting in a rare cultural and viewer blockbuster for a title that isn't a superhero film or an extension of a pre-existing uh, cinema franchise. It's not part of a cinematic universe. Now, while Barbie did tower over Oppenheimer, the three-hour Christopher Nolan historical epic also had a strong performance in its opening weekend, delivering $82 million, and also, oddly enough, had a Rotten Tomatoes number 94% with the critic score exactly equal to its uh, audience score. And so as I get ready to close out, I, I do kind of want to talk about the numbers because that that is obviously the linchpin of the Barbenheimer phenomenon is its inexplicable box office success. And, you know, I, I, I think those movies are in tandem uh, successful for a variety of reasons. Again, they're, they're not attached to pre-existing IP. They're not prequels. They're not sequels. They're not part of a cinematic universe. All, all of these things I've, I've already said. But what's fascinating to me is, and as history will remember Barbenheimer, like I, I think this is going to be studied in film classes for years to come because I, I feel like this is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, type of thing. Um, we've already seen like other movies that are coming that have the the same release date, like the the there's a there's a Paw Patrol movie that's coming that's going to drop on the same day as Saw Ten, um, and and people on on socials have already tried to make Saw Patrol a thing, and it's I I don't I don't think it's got the same juice. I really feel like this is kind of like a once in a lifetime type of thing. And I think it is the um, the excitement for Barbie, the excitement for Oppenheimer, and those two forces have combined to make those double features so um, enticing. But the thing also about this is not only are these are people going to see these movies, but they're bringing friends and they're going in large groups. Like, how many times have you been out eating and you look over at a table and you see a gang of pink ladies as if uh, you've, you've just stepped onto the set of Grease, like you're at Rydell High or something like that? 
um, chances are they're going to a screening of Barbie and it's, um, it's, it's something that's fun. Yeah. It's a goofy internet meme, but it's also translated to be a very real thing and people sharing their experiences. And for me, I mean, I, I'm not so cynical that I've lost my love for the movies. And I think amidst the strikes, um, I I do also think it's important to um look at this moment in history and and I I, I don't know it just it, it's it makes me feel good about being a fan of the movies so I I'm sure I could wax philosophical uh, about that at at some other time but I do want to talk about some numbers uh let's uh let's talk about the gross and again this is uh this is from a uh, from the Barbenheimer uh, stub in Wikipedia, and it's rotten with attribution, so I'm assuming all of the all of this stuff is legit, so I feel comfortable reading it. Um, so anyway, so uh, both films exceeded box office expectations. In fact, it's kind of quaint. I was just listening to an old episode of Fat Man Beyond, uh, Kevin Smith's uh, uh, podcast, where they were talking about the box office grosses for Barbie and Oppenheimer, and it was something like... Uh, Barbie was projected to bring in 80 and it ended up bringing in like 150. It's a, a one one sixty something. It's opening weekend. Same thing with Oppenheimer. It was projected to open at like 40 and did like 80. So yeah, so it's, it, it's just, it's just bonkers. Uh, in the United States and Canada, Barbie grossed 22.3 million in Thursday night previews while Oppenheimer grossed 10.5. This was the first time two movies released in the same weekend have grossed more than 10 million each in their previews, including previews. The movies made 70.5 million and 33 million on their first days, respectively, which led to weekend projections being increased to 160 and 77 million, respectively. The movies went on to debut to 162 million and 82.4 million, respectively. The Barbenheimer phenomenon was credited with boosting interest in the films, with a total of 79% of tickets sold over the weekend, 52% for Barbie and 27% for Oppenheimer, being for the two films a total of 18.5 million people. Additionally, Oppenheimer made $4.98 million from audience members who saw the film because their desired Barbie screening showtime was sold out. IMAX CEO Richard Gelfond described the weekend as a paradigm shift, referring to Oppenheimer bringing in $35 million from 740 IMAX screens. Now, Barbie and Oppenheimer led the July 21st through 23rd weekend to a total revenue of $310.5 million, making it the fourth largest domestic opening ever behind the weekends led by the openings of Avengers Endgame, which uh, opened to $402 million, Avengers Affinity War, uh, which opened to three fourteen, and Star Wars The Force Awakens, at $313 million. So, and again, th- those are single movies and this is two movies, but still it's, um, it's an impressive feat 
for two movies to open to over $80 million each. That's the first time in history that has happened. So um, lots and lots of um, uh, numbers. And I'm sure as the movie continues and because I'm sure Barbie will cross the $1 billion box office mark uh, before week three is over. Um, and it, it, it'll be interesting to see how Oppenheimer finishes as well after folks have, you know, survived the double feature experience. I don't think that Barbenheimer double features are a thing that's going to have longevity. I think Barbie will have longevity, and I think Oppenheimer will have its own kind of longevity, though I do wonder about those IMAX screenings that I was talking about earlier because, like, I, I've I've also heard reports of those 70-millimeter IMAX screenings uh, kind of fraught with mishaps. Like, you know, the film trays breaking down, film breaking, audio breaking, uh, screenings getting postponed and canceled. Um, so it's, as I said, with like with my press screening where they where they rolled it on film, that's showing it in that type of exhibition and that not happening as often, it's not without risk. So I would hate it if I drove the three plus hours to that IMAX in British Columbia to watch Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter IMAX. And if the screening was not absolutely perfect, I'd be, I'd be pretty darn upset. Um, but uh, lastly, I found I found this article on Nerdist. Uh, I thought it was kind of fun. Barbie versus Oppenheimer, who won the Barbenheimer showdown? And this uh, th- this will kind of be my last thought on it. Um, one of the biggest weekends in Hollywood history delivered everything audiences hoped for and more. Barbie and Oppenheimer are both critical and box office hits. More importantly, their combined force has reunited the public's love affair with going to the movies. But we know it's not enough to simply enjoy each film for what it is. Only a fool would let themselves appreciate two distinct works of art on their own merits. I mean, they had the audacity to come out on the same day, exclamation point. Uh, That kind of confrontational release schedule, which was pretty common not that long ago, is basically begging very smart people to declare one winner instead of celebrating that each is elevating the other while also lifting the entire medium and industry. And since we're not idiots, we're pitting each film head-to-head in a scientific, totally objective, totally serious Barbenheimer showdown. And we're doing that with categories that apply equally to both films. First up, Best Explosion. In a matchup this tough, it's always nice to start with a layup. Obviously, this goes to the movie which features an explosion of neon pink. Advantage, Barbie. Next, best use of color. This is another easy category to hand out. Only one is partially shot in black and white, making all of its scenes in color really stand out in comparison. A classic case of less is more. Advantage, Oppenheimer. Now it's best costumes. Barbie has great costumes, absolutely, but they're mostly based on toys lots of people have purchased. That pre-existing template likely made it super easy to recreate 
countless extravagant, stunning, memorable looks. Meanwhile, Oppenheimer needed clothes covering a span of nearly 40 years, from 1924 to 1963. During that time, men went from wearing dark suits and hats to slightly different dark suits and hats. And it's not clear they even had cameras back then. Talk about a tough assignment. Advantage? Oppenheimer. I like this one. Most times saying the movie's title. People say Barbie a lot in Barbie, but they also say Oppenheimer a lot in Oppenheimer. We tried to count each instance, but lost track of both after roughly 20 minutes. So this analysis may be a little less objective than we'd like, considering people sometimes chant or call Oppie, whereas no one ever calls her Barb. We feel good about which one is probably correct. Advantage? Barbie. Incidentally, how is it? And, and, and this is kind of like a, an effect of the Barbenheimer double feature experience because, and this, this blurb is correct. Uh, we, we are dropping Oppie like all the time. Oppie this, Oppie that. And I kept thinking, come on, Oppie, let's go party. And, uh, um, I, I don't know if I would have felt that way had I not just, uh, uh watched Barbie before. Uh, moving on to best musical number. Tough break for Oppenheimer, despite being three hours long, director Christopher Nolan inexplicably didn't find room for a single musical number. Will that cost the movie at the Oscars? Well, it definitely won't help. Meanwhile, I'm Just Ken will likely take home three or four Academy Awards on its own. Advantage, Barbie. Next, best use of a line from the sacred Hindu text, Bhavagad Gita. Wrong. How do you say it? Bhagavad Gita, often referred to as simply the Gita. Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita, and now you know. Okay, glad we cleared that up. Bhavagad Gita, or, or the Gita. Wrong again! We swear that this is true. Nothing said in Barbie comes directly from the Bhavagad Gita. No! From the Bhavagad Gita. No, not even anything weird Barbie says. We can't believe it either. Advantage? Oppenheimer. Moving on to second best use of a line from the sacred Hindu text, the Bhavagad Gita. More like, now I am become repetitive. Repeater of words, am I right? I read that with too much inflection. Uh, but a technical win is still a win. So, advantage? Oppenheimer. Not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another uh, come on get that crybaby out of here um, let's, uh, uh, let's move on to smartest lead character 
Who adds a random J to the start of their name for no reason? Oppenheimer was literally no Einstein. Meanwhile, stereotypical Barbie was busy saving the world with a genius plan while the brilliant scientist was busy blowing up his. Advantage? Barbie. We move on to Biggest Crybaby in a good way. Some of Barbie's best, most emotional, most important scenes feature its lead character crying. Advantage? Barbie. Biggest crybaby in a bad way, and I totally fucked up this joke earlier. How many people in history have had the sitting U.S. president call them a crybaby in the Oval Office? Gotta be a small list. Advantage, Oppenheimer. Incidentally, that scene with, uh, uh, with President Truman, and I think it's a spoiler to reveal who it is, but it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's a performance that... I think only that actor can deliver, but also, um, oh God, I, I, I want to talk about it, but I also don't want to talk about it because it's like, it's as awesome as it is hammy. Like, I mean, just, just like chewing the scenery, like the monster planet Unicron, but it's, uh, um, it, it's still a pretty potent scene. I, uh, got a rare chuckle from me, um. Uh, during during the viewing uh, and otherwise dismal viewing of Oppenheimer, but but now it is time to crown the ultimate Barbenheimer winner. Uh oh, our thorough, all-encompassing categories meticulously designed to fairly compare a heartfelt, lively comedy about an iconic toy that explores what it means to be a woman, and a grand, somber biopic about one of the most consequential and complicated scientists in history resulted in a final score of 5 to 5. You don't need to be an astrophysicist to know that that equals a tie. We haven't been this disappointed since we found out the patriarchy isn't just about horses. Better add one more category to break the tie. All right, the tiebreaker category according to Nerdist. Best existential crisis by a main character about how their life hurts so many people. Advantage. Oh, it's a push. Dang, looks like there's no clear winner in our big Barbenheimer showdown. And that is the ultimate Barbenheimer tie. It is possible no one won. In fact, it is actually childish to elevate art in a binary way that diminishes movies into arbitrary winners and losers. Should we instead focus on each film's deep themes to get to the very nature of what it means to exist and how we help shape the world we live in? In fact... Aren't the real winners everyone who loves movies because we got two excellent star-studded original films by talented directors on the same day? Yeah, maybe, but we're going to go see the movies a few more times just to be sure. And that was uh, that was written by Mikey Walsh. He is a staff writer over at Nerdist. All right, folks, and with that, that will wrap things up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for hanging out with me. Jam-packed week and a jam-packed month coming up on Mike Seibert Radio, coming up on Thursday, August 3rd. It's the existential dread of TFG1 Mike. And then Friday, August the 4th, we are celebrating the release of the brand new all original album from Cybertronic Spree in a crossover episode with uh, Mike Cybert Radio and Geekcast Radio again with TFG1 Mike. So you're going to have uh, roughly uh, three hours of 
uh, of TFG One Mike on the Mike Seibert Radio podcast feed. And then later in August, again, it's uh, it's Fuck Turfs and our review of the middle portion of Transformers Earthspark. And those new episodes are streaming now. So look for a future live stream in the future where Mike and the Earth Sparkles will uh, once again meet to discuss the conclusion of the long-awaited conclusion of Transformers Earthspark on the uh, Paramount Plus. Uh, don't forget to like, share, rate, and review the show. Let me know what you like and what you want to hear more of in the future. My name is Mike. This has been Mike Cyber Radio. And until next time, tell all or one, make your choice. Me and Bobby, bitch. And I'm bad like the Bobby. I'm a doll, but I still want to party. Pink felt like I'm ready to bend. I'm a 10, so I pull in a can. Like Jazzy, Stacy, Inky. All of the Bobbies is pretty. All of the Bobbies is bad. It, girls. And we ain't playing tag.